Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We are picking up from the end of chapter 1 in Philippians and into chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading from verse 27 of chapter 1. And it'll be on the screen behind me. Where the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves, wor- conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Jesse. Morning, everyone. We are going to cover from 127 right through to the end of chapter 2. So we won't be able to cover all the details, but we'll certainly hit the main points. But how about I pray for us before we get into it? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the example that you've given us in your Son. We just pray as we uh, read your word and hear it, uh, yeah, hear it's read out and spoken to us today, that you might speak to us, that we might hear your voice, and that you might change our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we live a life of worth? Over the years, I've looked to my achievements and the things that I do to define my worth. I think this is where my competitiveness comes from and where I have a really huge fear of failure. But it's not wrong to live a life of worth, is it? It's not wrong to want to mean something to 
to the people around us, and to have an impact on the world. Last week, we looked at how living for Jesus is worth it. And today, we'll be having a look at what Paul's got to say about how we can live a life of worth. He begins in 127 by instructing the Philippians to live a life of worth. Read it with me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Straight away, Paul instructs us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, which involves standing united, striving together for the gospel without fear. The word stand firm in the Greek is a military term used to describe soldiers who are standing firm against the opposition. And the word for striving in the Greek is athleto, where we get the word athlete from. So Paul's urging his audience to be both soldiers and athletes for the gospel, people who fight and compete fearlessly for the kingdom. These really, images really get me going, but they also terrify me. It's all well and good for battle-hardened soldiers to stand firm in the face of a battle, but how are we supposed to? I'm not a soldier, and as much as I like sport, I'm no elite athlete. What if being a soldier and an athlete for Jesus is too hard for us? What if we have a crack at this way of life and not meet the criteria? What if we just aren't good enough or fearless enough or driven enough to meet Jesus' standards? How can we in any way be sure that we actually can live a life of worth for Jesus? Is there a way for us to succeed at being his valued soldiers and athletes? Or do we have not a chance? Let's take a look at chapter 2 to find out. We'll touch on the rest of verses 28 to 30 later, but starting in chapter 2, we see that we live lives of worth not by works. Because a life of worth doesn't depend on what we do, but on what Jesus has done. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What's so insane about worth in Jesus' kingdom is that it isn't determined by the things people do, but the things Jesus has done. When we try to prove our worth to people, we always look to our own track record, our runs on the board, and then make a case from there. If you've ever had to uh, write up a resume, you know what this is like. I always feel a bit guilty when I'm writing up a resume because I pull all together all my achievements and all the things that I've done well and then just hide all the bad stuff. But that's what a resume is, isn't it? It's a portfolio of our achievements that'll impress and prove that we're up for the job. But we're also guilty of doing this with God as well. We think that when we die, God will summon us to heaven and we can just give him our resume with all the stuff that we've done for him, all the good things we've done in our life, all the ways that we've lived for his kingdom. But that's not how it works with God. Not only is he looking for perfection, he also knows everything about us, not just the good stuff. It doesn't matter what we want to include in our resume because it's all on there, even our worst moments. And so none of us are worthy before him. All of us fall short. But take a look at verse 1 again. The way into God's kingdom hasn't got anything to do with our performance. 
After giving us instructions to live a life of worth, back in chapter 1, Paul starts in verse 1 by reminding us that as Christians, we start worthy because of all that Jesus has done. The ifs here are rhetorical. Both Paul and the Philippians know they've begun to experience these things. And so what Paul's saying is that all Christians, right from the beginning, should be encouraged that they're already united to Christ. They're already comforted by his love. Christians are already share in his spirit and already receive his tenderness and compassion. When we believe in Jesus, we become united to him. We take on his righteousness as our own. We become worthy because he is worthy in our place. Jesus lived a life of obedience that we don't have to achieve perfection ourselves. He won a victory over sin and death so that it wasn't up to us to defeat the enemy on our own. It's because of what Jesus has done that means anyone who believes in him starts worthy. We don't have to prove our worth or do lots of good things or earn our place. Salvation comes purely from God. We saw this back in 128 where Paul says we'll be saved by God. God chooses us right from the start. In Jesus, we're worthy before we even begin. And so as Christians, we don't need to work really hard to prove to God that we're good enough. We don't need to do certain things in our lives to be valuable, to be valuable enough to earn salvation. Even before we begin, we can be encouraged that we're already worthy in Jesus. We're already loved. We don't have to prove our worth or earn it by doing things. Because it's not by works that we live lives of worth, but by Jesus and all that he's done for us. So, once we know we're worthy from the start, not by works, but by Jesus and what he's done, how do we go about living our lives? How do worthy people live and act? Our second point is that living a life of worth is not lived by worldly standards. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, read these verses again and have a think about the people that are at the top of our society. It's not quite the descriptors we'd use for the people worth the most today, is it? The people worth the most these days are those with the most money or the most followers or subscribers, those with entertaining talents or important positions in our society. Those who get the glory in our culture are the arrogant and the proud rather than the, the meek and the humble. The selfish instead of the selfless, those who consider themselves before they consider other people. The people of worth and value in our culture are the opposite of what Paul's describing in verses 3 to 4, which suggests to us that according to the Bible, we can't live a life of worth by worldly standards. If we didn't catch this in verses 3 to 4, Paul gives us the ultimate example in verses 5 to 8. Read these verses with me. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God by his very nature. God over all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last. And yet he chose to become like us, to become a man, which 
in comparison to God, is considered nothing, according to this passage. To go from being the God of the universe to being a, a crying baby born in an animal trough, dependent on his teenage mother. To go from being the most significant person in the universe to the least. But it only gets worse. Jesus then grows up and lives a, a humble life of servant-hearted obedience, living for and living with the absolute lowest of society. And he lives his entire life like this, till he's betrayed, arrested, and crucified, dying the most humiliating of deaths. To the world, Jesus was born worthless, lived a life that was pretty much worthless, and then died in such a humiliating fashion that any worth he did have was considered worthless. On the surface, Jesus seems to have lived a life of no value, no significance. His life couldn't have been more different from a life that's valuable by the world's standards. Which is why the next three verses are so incredibly surprising. Read with me from verse 9. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God chooses to exalt a man who lived a worthless life by the world's standards, who lived a life with the lowest of society, who died the death of a criminal. God chooses this man, Jesus, to be exalted to the highest place in heaven and given the name above every name, the name in which every single person in heaven and on earth will bow and acknowledge as Lord. In God's eyes, worth isn't measured by worldly standards. It's because Jesus was humble and lowly, not proud and famous. Because he was selfless and servant-hearted, not selfish and self-absorbed. It's because he became nothing that God exalted him to the highest place. This seems pretty tough, doesn't it? <laughs> it is tough. This is what Paul was talking about back in 128 to 30, where he says that being in Jesus doesn't just mean we get to believe in him and be saved. It also means we get to suffer for him too. Living a life of true worth, following Jesus' example, is hard. We're practically called to die to ourselves and to suffer in the same way Jesus did, following in his footsteps by lowering ourselves to become humble servants. Living a life of true worth is going to be hard. But see how it ends. Following Jesus in the life he lived involves following him through suffering into glory. As followers of Jesus, we literally get to follow him through suffering into glory, through death into life, through humiliation into exaltation. The example of Jesus here in these verses calls us to follow him in living a life that's of true worth. By God's standards, not a life that's worthy by the world's standards. But how are we supposed to survive the suffering? Our next point is that we're not on our own. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul's still talking to Christians, people who are already saved and worthy because of what Jesus has done. But he's urging them to keep living lives that are of worth 
by God's standards, following Jesus' example. We can see this where he says, continue to work out your salvation, not earn your salvation, continue to live it out, following Jesus' example. But notice who's really working here. See in verse 13, it's God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. On one of the cleaning nights here at Southside, I was on vacuuming all these chairs, and I just couldn't get the vacuum to work. I tried everything I could, just couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And then Phoenix comes along as, as I was about to give up. He's a sparky, Phoenix is a sparky. And he said, how about you try a different PowerPoint? And he just unplugged it, popped it in a different PowerPoint, and sure enough, the vacuum started working. I would have given up without him, but thankfully, I wasn't on my own. Phoenix was there and he helped me out. If we try and live a life of worth without God, we're going to give up sooner or later because we need him to help us. Trying to be a soldier and an athlete from chapter one in our own strength isn't going to work. But the good news is that we aren't on our own. We have God who's all-knowing and in control, and so there's nothing for us to fear. He will provide us without everything that we need to live a life for him of humility and service, a life of true worth. But does this mean that we should complain and grumble about everything in life because it's often too hard for us because we need God? Our final point is that we can live a life of worth by not grumbling and arguing. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, the grumbling and arguing calls to mind the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled and argued whenever things got hard. Exodus 15, 24 is a great example of this. The Israelites were grumbling because they were thirsty. And to be fair, they were in the wilderness and had gone three days without water, so their concern's a legit one. Most of us have access to food and water whenever we want, and yet we still grumble about anything and everything that's going on in our lives. But God had just brought the Israelites through the Red Sea, saving them from the Egyptian army. If he could bring them through the Red Sea, surely he could find them something to drink. And in Exodus, we see that God does provide them with water the moment that they ask for it. But then barely five verses later in Exodus 16, 12, they're grumbling again because they're hungry this time. And as soon as God, they ask God, he again provides for them. But you, you can see how the Israelites didn't believe God, that God would provide. They forgot that he was in control, and so they grumbled and argued about it. Paul in our passage uses the Israelites as an example of, of what not to do. To live a life of worth involves trusting that God will provide unlike what the Israelites did. It involves believing, really believing that we're not on our own. The Israelites failed to trust in God and forgot that they weren't alone. But how often do we grumble about things because we forget that God's in control? How often do we tell other people about how we're worried or stressed about something only for it to resolve itself shortly after? Towards the end of Moses' life, he speaks a song in Deuteronomy 32, both recounting Israel's time in the wilderness and prophesying about what was to come. In this song, Moses describes the Israelites as a corrupt people, a warped and crooked generation. 
people who could no longer be considered God's people, let alone his children. But in Jesus, all peoples have been given a second chance. In him, we can be considered worthy at the very beginning. In him, we no longer have to fear falling out of God's favor or losing our value in his eyes. It's in Jesus that we're set free to live a life of joy, not fear, like we see in Paul in verses 16 to 18. The Israelites were a blemished people, a warped and crooked people who grumbled about everything. But in Jesus, we're given an opportunity to be considered pure and blameless once more. No longer a warped and crooked generation, but a people who are children of God without fault in his eyes. When we grasp the reality that a life of worth is not worthy because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And when we realize that a life of, tr- a true, of true worth is one of humility, selflessness, and service, that follows Jesus through suffering into glory, and when we trust in God that he will provide, not grumbling and trying to do it on our own, then we'll be God's children without blemish, pure and blameless in his eyes. People who shine like stars in the night sky. The rest of our passage basically gives us two examples of people who are living a life of worth. I'd encourage you to read in your own time, but both Timothy in verses 19 and 24 and Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30 are people who shine bright and stand out from the world around them. Both men shine like stars because they aren't trying to prove their worth in what they do, like everybody else. They're worthy from the start. They shine like stars because they're living a life unworthy by the world's standards, but of true worth in God's eyes. Timothy is a man of humility who genuinely cares for other people more than himself. And Epaphroditus also almost died in his eagerness to serve. These men shine like stars in the world around them because they're living a life that reflects Jesus in the way he lived, following him through humiliation and suffering into glory and exaltation. C.S. Philippians 2 shows us how to live a life of worth, a life that will impact the people around us as we shine like stars in the night sky. But it's also an invitation. It's inviting us to live a life where we don't find our worth in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. A life that isn't worthy by the world's standards, but of true worth, to God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Philippians 2 invites us not to try and stand and strive on our own, but to trust and rely on God and his provision for our every need. It invites us to become children of God, blameless, pure, children who shine like stars in the night sky, children who are lights in the darkness, children who can rejoice because they're God's children for all of eternity. I'm going to pray now and ask God to help us to accept this invitation and to to ask him to provide everything that we need to provide us to live a life of worth. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now knowing that we are unworthy, but knowing that we are worthy in you. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've tried to live life on our own. Remind us that you are with us every step of the way and that you provide for us and for our every need, even when we can't see it. Lord, help us to accept this invitation. Help us to to live for you, not for the world's standards, and to live a life in which we will become pure and blameless in your eyes. Help us to shine like stars in the night sky, like lights in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.